Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. And this is episode number 27 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Wednesday, November 17th. 2021. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored and unfiltered. Now, before I get to today's news, I want to tell you about a personal journey I've been on for 13 years and how, by the grace of God, I discovered the best kept secret in American health care. I have hoped and prayed for years for the opportunity to share this on a national stage, and I'm thankful the Lord has opened the door for me to do so. Back in 2008, I was living in Brunswick, Georgia, selling radio commercials. That's where I met a doctor who taught me about a crucial part of health care that most of us have never heard of. Okay, here goes. Your skull weighs somewhere between 8 and 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1 bone, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for that atlas bone to get out of alignment. If it does get out of alignment, it can cause your spinal column to get kinked up like a chain. So that can lead to big problems because that's where your central nervous system is located. If your spinal column gets kinked up, it can cause your central nervous system to be unable to send impulses to the rest of your body as God designed it to do. So you need to find out if you need an upper cervical care doctor. They're the doctors who take x-rays of your head and neck to see if your atlas is out of alignment. And if it is, they're the doctors who will adjust your atlas to get it back in alignment and you feel better. At the time I found out about this over 13 years ago, I was a single dad and my mom was helping me raise my six children. So I went home and told her about this doctor I met who adjusts people's atlases and about the results he was getting. She said, Doc, you have to take your son, Steve. He's only 13 years old, and I'm afraid he's developing scoliosis, curvature of the spine. He can't sit up straight. He can't stand up straight, and he has migraines all the time. So I took Steve. He got his atlas adjusted, and immediately he sat up straight, and he stood up straight. After his third adjustment, the migraines went away for good. Then my mom told me, Doc, look at yourself in the mirror. Your shoulders are off balance, and you have bad headaches all the time. I think you need to get your atlas adjusted. So I did, and the migraines went away. But I also realized that I had been suffering through a low-grade but consistent head and neck ache caused by several automobile accidents I had been in over the past 20 years. So that consistent low-grade head and neck ache went away immediately. And I instantly realized I had been walking around in a fog for several years. Getting my atlas adjusted was like coming up out of the ether. But what really surprised me was when springtime came around, and for the first time I could remember, I didn't have hay fever. Well, that was quite a shock because I had had really bad hay fever every spring going all the way back to my school days. Folks who have their atlases adjusted have reported success with not just migraines, not just allergies, but fibromyalgia, acid reflux, and even eczema. 
It's all about adjusting the atlas to remove the obstruction that keeps your central nervous system from sending impulses to different parts of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I've been under this kind of care for over 13 years in three different states. I think I would probably be in a wheelchair by now if I hadn't found out about getting my atlas adjusted. My wife and I know many people this has helped. If you're wondering if you need to get your atlas adjusted, look in the mirror or look at a picture of yourself. Do your eyes look off balance? Do your shoulders look off balance? Do you naturally tilt your head to one side or the other? When you sit on the sofa, are you most comfortable leaning one way or the other? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. If you'd like to get a free consultation with a doctor near you who adjusts atlases, go to the website TurnMyPowerOn.com. We link to it on our website, TurnMyPowerOn.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, we have so much breaking news, so much stuff going on this morning. Let's just jump right into it. Kyle Rittenhouse Defense accuses prosecutors of withholding key video. Is it going to be a mistrial? Is it going to be a mistrial? We'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. New York Post has a story. Lee Brown, Kyle Rittenhouse's legal team, accused prosecutors of holding back key video footage that is at the heart of their case in a formal motion for a mistrial. Lawyers for the 18-year-old Kenosha, Wisconsin gunman. Gunman? Gunman? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You're supposed to be in the New York Post. You're supposed to be fair and balanced. What do you mean gunman? Are you kidding me? Lawyers for the 18-year-old thoroughly innocent young man. No, if they're, they're going to slant it one way, I'll slant it the other way. Already called for a mistrial during the hearing and filed a formal seven-page request less than an hour before closing arguments Monday. According to the Chicago Tribune, the motion argues any conviction should be overruled and seeks to forbid any chance of a retrial if Rittenhouse is cleared of the five felonies he faces for the deadly triple shooting at last year's Kenosha riots. No, it wasn't deadly for one of them. Wow. New York Post. Owned by what's-his-face. It highlighted some of the, you know, the guy that owns uh, Fox. It highlighted some of the uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, prosecutors' missteps that already had Judge Bruce Schroeder railing at them, including mentioning evidence they had been warned not to use and also making a play on the teen's right to silence. But it also accused prosecutors of withholding of, of holding back the high-resolution drone footage used to try to suggest that Rittenhouse had been the aggress, aggressor when he claimed self-defense before the first shooting. Prosecutors gave the defense a hard-to-see, low-resolution version and 3.6 MB file less than a third of the high-res they actually had, according to the motion. They only got the better quality clip already used by the prosecutors on Saturday after testimony had concluded. The defense motion further states the video footage 
has been at the center of this case, calling it the linchpin in their case. The motion insisted the failure to provide the same quality footage in this particular case is intentional and clearly prejudices the defendant. The defense insisted that prosecutors' missteps during the hearing were clearly intentional, even suggesting they wanted a retrial to get another kick at the cat because the first trial was going so badly. The motion said the testimony in this case up to that point had not gone very well for the prosecutors. Citing witnesses who appeared to corroborate Rittenhouse's claim that he was under attack when he opened fire. Yeah, how about Gage? How about good old Gage Grosskreutz? So our client did not shoot you until you pointed your gun at him, right? Correct. That's when the prosecutor put his head in his hands. The motion to dismiss has yet to be formally addressed in court. It will likely be addressed after the jury finishes its deliberations, which today are entering a second day. The jury of 12 deliberated for a full day yesterday without reaching a decision. That's, that's troubling. They should have come back with not guilty in all counts in eight minutes. Anyway, several appeared tired as they walked into the courtroom Tuesday evening and indicated with a show of hands that they were ready to go home. Not sequestered. Are you kidding me? Not sequestered. Are you kidding me? Rittenhouse faces life in prison if convicted for using an AR-style semi-automatic rifle to kill 26-year-old Rosenbaum, 26-year-old Anthony Huber, and wounding Gage Grosskreutz, now 28, during the BLM riots when he was just 17. Oh, man. So the prosecution is like, we don't care what the law is. We don't care what the rules of evidence are. That uh, high-resolution video, that would be exculpatory. And we're not interested in justice. We, we want to... We want this guy in prison for the rest of his life. We don't care. That's why we lie all the time. See, witnesses might be under oath, but prosecution is not under oath. Understand? All right. Um, speaking of withholding evidence, speaking of hiding things, um, Alex Berenson former reporter for the New York Times, has been doing an incredible job of trying to get the truth out about the Rona. You might want to call it the Wu flu. Yes, you might want to call it the China virus. And the uh, alleged vaccines, which you should know by now aren't really vaccines. So... Last night, Alex Berenson on his Substack, because he's been kicked off all the major mainstream media for telling the truth on his Substack last night. I see the headline. 
urgent. Pfizer failed to report six deaths of COVID vaccine recipients when it updated its clinical trial results in July. He says, I'm re-upping this piece and making it available for everyone in the widest and simplest form because it's too important to miss. The one-paragraph summary, Pfizer told the world 15 recipients of Comirnaty had died in his pivotal trial. The real number was 21 compared to only 17 people who didn't get the shot. Now, Comirnaty is the new vaccine that the FDA has approved but it's not available in the United States. So they continue to lie and imply that the Pfizer vaccine they are using in the U.S. is approved, which it isn't. And if it were, then you would no longer technically be able to get the Johnson & Johnson or the Moderna because they're under emergency use authorization. And the only way you can have emergency use authorization is if there is no approved alternative. You get, You got me? All right, let's take a look at his article here. More people died in the key clinical trial for Pfizer's COVID vaccine than the company publicly reported. Alex Berenson. This dropped um, 21 hours ago, so right after I got through my live stream yesterday. He says, on July 28th, Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, posted a six-month data update from their key COVID vaccine clinical trial, the one that led regulators worldwide to okay the shot. At a time when questions about vaccine effectiveness were rising, the report received worldwide attention. Pfizer said the vaccine's efficacy remained relatively strong at 84% after six months. It also reported 15 of the roughly 22,000 people who received the vaccine in the trial had died compared to 14 of the 22,000 people who received the placebo, a saline saline shot that didn't contain the vaccine. Now, these are not just COVID deaths. In fact, they were mostly not from COVID. Only three of the people in the trial died of COVID-related illnesses, one who received the vaccine and two who had received the saline shot. The other deaths were from other illnesses and diseases, mostly cardiovascular. Researchers call this data point all-cause mortality. Pfizer barely mentioned it, stuffing the details of the deaths in an appendix to the report. But all-cause mortality is arguably the most important measure for any drug or vaccine, especially one meant to be given prophylactically to large numbers of healthy people as vaccines are. And he's got the screenshot here for the reported causes of death. And there are a bunch of different ones. He says, although the researchers released their update in July, the data was already more than four months old. They had stopped collecting information about deaths as of March 13, the data cutoff. But even at the time, their figures were somewhat troubling. 
in their initial safety report to the FDA, which contained data through November 2020. The researchers had said four placebo recipients and two vaccine recipients had died, one after the first dose, one after the second. The July update reversed that trend. Between November 2020 and March 2021, 13 vaccine recipients died compared to only 10 placebo subjects. Further, nine vaccine recipients had died from cardiovascular events such as heart attacks or strokes compared to just six placebo recipients who died of those causes. The imbalance was small but notable, considering that regulators worldwide had found that the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines were linked to heart inflammation in young men. Alex Berenson says, I reported accurately on this study on Twitter on July 29, and the next day Twitter suspended me for a week for doing so, the fourth of my fifth Uh, the fourth of my five defamatory strikes for so-called COVID misinformation. He says at best, the results suggested that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine now pushed on nearly a billion people worldwide at a cost of tens of billions of dollars and ruinous and worsening civil liberties restrictions did nothing to reduce overall deaths. Worse, Pfizer and BioNTech have vaccinated almost all the placebo recipients in the trial shortly after the FDA okayed the vaccine for emergency use December 11th, 2020. As a result, they had destroyed our best chance to compare the long-term health of a large number of vaccine recipients with a scientifically balanced group of people who had not received the drug. The July 28th report appeared to be the latest clean safety data update we would ever have. But now, now, the FDA has given us one more. On November 8th, the agency released its summary basis for regulatory action, a 30-page note explaining why on August 23rd, it granted full approval to Pfizer's vaccine, replacing the emergency authorization from December 2020. And buried on page 23 of the report is this stunning sentence. Are you ready? From dose one through the March 13, 2021 data cutoff date, there were a total of 38 deaths, 21 in the Comirnaty vaccine group and 17 in the placebo group. Now, Pfizer said publicly in July it had found 15 deaths among vaccine recipients by mid-March, but it told the FDA there were 21 at the same data cutoff end date, March 13th. 21, not 15. The placebo figure in the trial was also wrong. Pfizer said 17 deaths among placebo recipients, not 14. Nine extra deaths overall, six among vaccine recipients. Could the discrepancy result from some odd data lag? Maybe. But the FDA briefing book also contains the number of COVID cases that Pfizer found in vaccine recipients in the trial. Those figures are exactly the same as those Pfizer posted publicly in July. 
yet the death counts were different. Pfizer somehow miscounted or publicly misreported or both the number of deaths in one of the most important clinical trials in the history of medicine. And the FDA's figures paint a notably more worrisome picture of the vaccine than the public July numbers. Though the absolute numbers are small, overall deaths were 24% higher among vaccine recipients. The update also shows that 19 vaccine recipients died between November and March compared to 13 placebo recipients, a difference of almost 50%. Were the extra deaths cardiac-related? It's impossible to know. The FDA did not report any additional details of the deaths, saying only that none were considered related to vaccination. But with tens of thousands of post-vaccine deaths, now reported in the United States and Europe, and overall non-COVID death rates now running well above normal in many countries. A fresh look at that vague reassurance cannot happen soon enough. Wow. The first comment says, time was when the FDA protected the public from bad drugs. Now the FDA protects bad drug makers from the public. I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Follow the money. How much of it is about money? How much of it is about power? I don't know. I don't know, but this next article I'm going to share with you is why uh, people like retired Colonel Kurt Schlichter and uh, talk show host out of Houston, Jesse Kelly, keep on saying we're going to lose a major war. Hope they're wrong. Hope they're wrong. And again, we're in God's hands. We're in God's hands. But um, I feel like I need to share this one with you. From the Federalist, which these days is having so many really compelling articles. John Lucas, over the Federalist, practicing attorney who has argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and who, before entering law school at University of Texas, served in the Army Special Forces and graduated from U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1969. Army Ranger fought in Vietnam as an infantry platoon, platoon leader. He's a real guy here. John Lucas, new article, The Federalist, entitled, Pentagon Spokesman Says Climate Change is as big a national security threat as China. You got that? Subtitle, the Biden administration's refusal to distinguish between our principal military adversary and climate change is yet more evidence that the military is following ideology, ideology instead of winning our wars. And here's what he says. 
In a press briefing, November 10th, Pentagon spokesman, retired Admiral John Kirby, gave further evidence of the Biden administration's incoherent national strategy. He refused to distinguish between China and so-called climate change as threats to U.S. national security. In response to a question of which is a bigger threat, the climate or China, Kirby said, you've heard the secretary talk about the climate as a real and existential national security threat, and we considered China as the number one pacing challenge for the department. Both are equally important. Both are challenges that the secretary wants a senior leadership at the Pentagon to be focused on, as well as many others, too. Now, Kirby's answer was a bit of a muddle. He first described China as the number one pacing threat, but he then immediately added, both are equally important. The questioning reporter then sought clarification. He says, so if you were to rank the two, climate or China, which would be first? Kirby can only say, I think I answered your question. Others are more clear-headed. Despite Kirby's refusal to clarify his comments, Dementia Joe's director of the CIA, William Burns, has not hesitated in naming China as our, quote, most significant threat and challenge, unquote, throughout the foreseeable future, and said that, quote, out-competing China will be key to our national security, unquote. The outgoing vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Hyten, was brutally direct in recent comments reported by CNN. <clears throat> he told reporters at a Defense Writers Group roundtable last month, quote, calling China a pacing threat is a useful term because the pace at which China is moving is stunning. The pace they're moving and the traje trajectory they're on will surpass Russia and the United States. If we don't do something to change it, it will happen. So I think we have to do something, unquote. So Burns's warnings and Heighton's warnings are backed up by China's aggressive military buildup, which leaves no room for doubt that its strategy is one of expansion and aggression. In 2020, the Department of Defense reported to Congress that what is certain is that the CCP has a strategic end state that is working toward, which have achieved, and it's, and it's accompanying military modernization left unaddressed, will have serious implications for U.S. national interests and the security of the international rules-based order. As part of that modernization, China's Navy has surpassed the U.S. Navy as the world's largest. Its recent leap ahead of us in the development of a hypersonic nuclear-capable missile sent shockwaves through the military and intelligence communities. Given the strategic threat posed by China, Kirby's refusal to distinguish between the threats posed by it and so-called climate change raises the question, why does Admiral Kirby still have a job? Well, we all know that, don't we? Because he serves at the pleasure not of Dementia Joe, but at whoever Dementia Joe's puppet, ha puppet handlers are, whoever's pulling his strings. Anyway, the answer is because Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Commander-in-Chief Joe Biden approve of what he said. John Lucas continues here. The American public needs to be aware that the Biden administration's position, as reflected in Kirby's refusal to, to distinguish 
between our principal military adversary and so-called climate change represents a monumental change in U.S. military strategy. It is yet more evidence that the military is faithfully following the so-called progressive agenda instead of sharpening its focus on winning our wars. It is of a piece with General Mark Thurley Modern, Modern Milley's focus on white rage and his classification of thousands of demonstrators at the Capitol on January 6th as domestic enemies who are trying to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. Under Lloyd Austin, under Lloyd Austin, Department of Defense has embraced the climate change religion. In October, DOD proclaimed the crisis and stated it would take immediate action to elevate the climate as a national security priority and, among other things, reduce our carbon footprint. Well, you know, whenever I hear about that, because they're claiming that uh, CO2 is a pollutant, CO2, which we all exhale and which plants have to have to inhale, I always think, look, if CO2, which every human being exhales, if that is actually a pollutant, then some people are going to need to step up to the plate, all right? Some people are going to have to set a good example, all right? So the following people need to wear about 15 masks and totally stop exhaling. And I would say uh, dementia Joe Biden, heals up Harris, Kamala Harris, you know, the Veep. Um. See, Hillary Clinton, I know she's no longer the government, but I, I think she ought to give it a shot. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama, who clearly don't believe in climate change. They wouldn't have bought a, a $15 million estate right on an ocean of Martha's Vineyard. See who else we got. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Uh, how about climate czar John Kelly? John Kerry, I said to Vietnam. Who else? Jen Psaki. You step up, step up to the plate and, and stop exhaling. No, that's carbon footprint right there. That's CO2. Nope, sorry. Can't do that anymore. 15 masks. Shut it down. I don't know. I mean, to, to really stop exhaling, 15 masks, is that enough? Or do they need to put a, a Ziploc on their head too? No, I'm just carrying it to its logical extreme. Um, who else we got? So we got Anthony Blinken in the uh, in the cabinet there. Oh, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, transportation secretary, who went on maternity leave for a couple of months, and nobody missed him, right? So he would be a non-essential employee then. Oh, 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 oh! Lest I forget, of course. SecDef, Lloyd Austin, because climate change is just as much of a threat as China. Lloyd Austin needs to step up and lead by example. No, no more of this leading behind stuff, not leading from behind. No, no, no. Lead by example. Stop exhaling. Lloyd Austin, yeah. Oh, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mike Thurley, Modern Milley. I think 15 masks is not enough for him. Maybe 20 masks. Yeah. He's a big guy. 
He's a big guy. Lead by example. Stop putting that carbon footprint out there with your CO2. And uh, the only way to do that is stop exhaling. So, <clears throat> your thoughts are always welcome at 866-609-3711. Oh, we actually take calls on the live stream. No, you can't call in if you're, <laughs> if you're listening later on the download of the podcast, but if you're listening on the the, the live stream on the Podbean app, and then and you can. Now, something I want to mention to you, because, you know, Ronald Reagan said some of the scariest words anybody's ever heard are, we're from the government and we're here to help you. Right? Because, I mean, back in the day, some of them meant well. But when you get up to uh, 09 and Obama, you know they didn't mean well. He's going to try to make life more difficult for you. And so they lied and called Obamacare the Affordable Care Act, even though they made your health care more expensive, even though they set it up so that your health insurance premium would start feeling like a second mortgage, even though... Obamacare included sky-high deductibles preventing you from going to the doctor. Sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor. Now, if these things have been bothering you, I don't know if you know, but there's a way out. There's a way to get affordable health insurance plans. There's a way to save 30 to 50% on your premiums. way to get personalized health coverage with low to possibly even no deductible and no copays. That sound like something that will work for you? My buddy Art Wilborn has a website called myfamilyhealthplan.com. And he will hook you up. And by the way, while you're at it, he won't give you an insurance plan that would force you to cover horrible things like abortion that would deeply offend your deeply held religious beliefs. MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, and no copays. I bet you didn't think that was still possible 12 years after Obamacare kicked in, did you? But it is. Go to Art's website, book a free consultation, and Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Again, save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You will be so glad you did. All right. That having been said, a lot going on. A lot we got to get to. Now, you know, the other day I played for you some audio from this uh this woman, Saul Omarova, who grew up in the Soviet Union, went to college there. She is a communist. Makes no bones about it. She's a communist. I played the audio of her explaining how if she gets confirmed 
to be comptroller of the currency. That's the person who oversees the banks. That's what Biden has nominated her for. Then she wants to do away with private bank accounts, private banks, and everybody's money would be directly overseen by the Federal Reserve. So if they need money, they could say, just take money out of your private bank account and nothing you can do about it. That's who Biden wants to be in charge of the banks. Well, would it shock you to find out that Biden's nominee to lead the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency at the Treasury Department was arrested in 1995 for retail theft? Oh, yeah. Houston Keene over at foxnews.com has this. Fox News obtained a Wisconsin Department of Justice criminal background check of Saul Omarova, president's nominee to lead the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. According to the background check, Omarova was arrested by Madison, Wisconsin police officers June 2nd, 1995 and charged with a misdemeanor count of retail theft. See, but that wasn't enough for her. Now she wants to steal from you on a massive, felonious basis. Anyway, the background check also lists Omarova as having a deferred prosecution in January of 96 for the charge, which was dropped through the, through the Wisconsin First Offender Program. The White House defended Omarova's nomination in a statement to Fox News, saying the nominee has been fully transparent about the incident throughout her career. Really? First I've heard. White House spokesperson said, quoting now, to be clear, Saul has been fully transparent about this incident her entire career, including to the Senate and applications, and when she worked at the Treasury Department during the Bush administration, Whoa, 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 whoa. Hardcore, avowed, out-of-the-closet communist was allowed to work at the Treasury Department during the Bush administration. Really? Really? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, that W, man. He was really ecumenical, wasn't he? Yeah. Had all kinds of... uh, people, anti-American folks working for him. You know, there's a reason they call people like W a rhino, Republican name only, but uh, that's a whole other show. I don't want to get too far down the, the rabbit trail here. So I digress. Sue me. So the White House spokesperson says this case was ultimately dismissed in January 1996, more than 25 years ago. and was the result of a misunderstanding and confusing situation. Oh, I see. A misunderstanding, a confusing situation. So she was a communist, and so she just thought she could um, do the five-finger discount there at the Target or the Walmart or whatever it was, the Old Navy, the Bed Bath & Beyond, whatever it was. And Madison, yeah, I'm a communist. I didn't realize you couldn't just walk in and 
pick stuff up, take it out? Has she been in a time machine to San Francisco where they can get away with that? As long as whatever you steal is less than $950, they're cleaning out Wal- uh, Walgreens and CVSs and, uh, in San Francisco? Yeah, maybe that's it. She was like Nostradamus. She had ESPN too. Well, eventually they're going to let people do that, so why don't I just try it now? Ah, the White House spokesperson continued, it's sad that a far-right partisan group with a pattern of engaging in tawdry behavior would partner with Fox News to smear the name of a qualified nominee seeking to serve her country. Her country's no longer around. The Soviet Union was broken up. That's her country. Far-right partisan group with a pattern of engaging in tawdry behavior. You know, since Stalin was her hero, I think he kind of engaged in some tawdry behavior. Somebody do a fact check on that? Joseph Stalin, her hero. Or was it Fidel Castro her hero? He engaged in some tawdry behavior, didn't he? Uh, Or was Ho Chi Minh her hero? I think he engaged in some tawdry behavior. Hmm? Oh, it goes further back. Vladimir Lenin, her hero. Pretty sure he engaged in some tawdry behavior. Can I bring up Pol Pot while we're at it? Anyway, the White House spokesperson continued, Saul Omarova is eminently qualified and was nominated for this role here. Uh, given a strong track record and regulation and uh, strong academic credentials. The White House strongly supports this historic nomination. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. The White House did not respond to Fox News inquiry as to which far-right partisan group they were alluding to. Since Omarova's arrest is public record in Wisconsin and therefore accessible by any member of the media or public, well, why were they only one to get it, though? I guess nobody else is interested. A Senate staffer familiar with the matter confirmed to Fox News Omarova's charge was disclosed to the Senate Banking Committee. Her hearing before the committee is scheduled for tomorrow. Senate Banking Committee Republicans are pushing back vigorously against Biden's latest controversial nominee, highlighting Omarova's history, writing about socialism. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican, Tennessee, member of the Senate Banking Committee, told Fox News in a statement that the senator has many concerns about Omarova's nomination. Quoting now, President Biden's choice for banking regulators, a Marxist academic who wants to destroy the American banking and energy sectors, and implement socialism in the United States, proving once again this White House is beholden to the radical left elements of the Democrat Party. Oh, yeah, I forgot to uh, mention that part. The audio I played of this horrible woman the other day talking about how we have to bankrupt the coal and oil industry. Remember that? Spokesperson for Senate Banking Committee Chairman Democrat Senator Sherrod Brown, Ohio, said told Fox News Omarova has been the subject of a relentless smear campaign over the charges. 
Quote, since this historic and eminently qualified nominee was put forth by President Biden, she's been the subject of a relentless smear campaign. The incident took place several decades ago, and the case against Ms. Omarova was dismissed. Yeah, but see, but see, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. It's still in her heart. Now she wants to steal from you on a much broader, more massive basis. She wants to get rid of private banking institutions, get rid of the banks, and any bank account you have would have to be the Federal Reserve, and they take your money out of it whenever they need it. You know, I'm reminded, some of the gray hairs in the audience might remember. Remember a guy named uh, John Genret? <laughs> some of the older ones in the audience might remember. Uh, you, you might remember his, his wife, Rita Genret, better. John Genret was a uh, Democrat congressman back in the 80s. Uh, from South Carolina. And he got caught up in the uh, ab scam, the, uh, the the sting. The feds uh, pulled on him. And uh, he said, I have larceny in my veins. Remember that? Larceny in my veins. Yeah. He lost his job there in the Congress. Um, let's see. Most famous for two things during his days as a congressman. First, well, no, that has nothing to do with anything. He was charged with and convicted of accepting a $50,000 bribe in the FBI sting operation known as Abscam, which was conducted in 1980. He's recorded saying he had been given a cash bribe by an associate. Jenrette was sentenced to two years in prison, of which he served 13 months. Yeah, Larceny in my veins. You know, I think Saul Almorova has larceny in her veins. She's a Cornell Law School professor who has a history in private law practice and worked in the Treasury Department under former President George W. Bush. How I thought I thought that vetted they vetted people. She's a communist. In addition to writing about Marxism, she is called the banking industry. She would regulate in her potential new job, the quintessential Blank industry, the A word. Calling for an end to banking as we know it by the complete migration of demand deposit accounts to the Federal Reserve. See, I'm not making this up. Demand deposit accounts are the standard checking and saving accounts most Americans have with private banks. She also said in a recently resurfaced video that she supports the idea of energy industries going bankrupt to combat climate change. I'm not making this up. Biden has nominated other controversial nominees, such as Bureau of Land Management Director Tracy Stone Manning, who was confirmed to her post by the United States Senate in the face of revelations of her connection to a 1989 eco-terrorism plot. 
Yeah, I remember that. They would spike the trees. Eco-terrorism. So uh, lumberjacks could possibly be killed when the saw would hit the spike in the tree. So interesting. I didn't realize that the eco-terrorist was actually confirmed by the Senate. Trying to get the uh, the link on that, but it won't uh, it won't load for me. So I was going to reboot the, uh, not reboot, but refresh the page. Oh, I got too many tabs open. It's one of those things. It happens. No big, no big. I wonder what Biden thinks about all this. Let's check in with uh, Dementia Joe. See what he thinks about all this. Yeah, turn this up over here. And by the way, you know, I sit on the stand. Oh, no. And it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs. Whoa, wait. That turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. Wait, 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 and wait. The kids used to come up and reach in the pool and oh, rub my leg man. down. So it was straight and then oh, watch the hair come back up again. Oh, no. Look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. Roaches? And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. I'm sure you do, man. I think that was the wrong cut from Biden. Let me see if I can make sure I can get something else here. Let's go. Conversations around those kitchen tables that are both profound as they are ordinary. How do I cross a bridge in a snowstorm? What happened? No, I'm, think about it. You know, you're in a situation, what happens if the bridge collapses and there's a fire on the other side? <laughs> it's going to take 10 miles longer to get to the fire. People can die. I mean, this is real. This is real stuff. You know, I got to tell you, this guy, uh, we got a saying in the South. That boy ain't right. And if that applies to anybody, anybody, it applies to Dementia Joe. I mean, it really, really applies to Dementia Joe. Now, Fauci has decided what you need to do to enjoy your Thanksgiving and or Christmas holiday. I don't know if you heard about this. If you get vaccinated and your family's vaccinated, you can feel good about enjoying a typical Thanksgiving, Christmas with your family and close friends. Unless, of course, you get myocarditis or pericarditis from the vaccine and drop dead. See, he always forgets. He always leaves something out. So I thought, thought I'd throw that in there. Now, we had um, Dr. Peter McCullough, a clip from him the other day, explaining some of the uh, some of the things that are really, really wrong with the so-called vaccine, the uh, experimental gene therapy jab that they call a vaccine. So Dr. Peter McCullough played a clip from him, I think a, a couple of days ago, talking about that. We have a clip now from one of his associates, uh, Dr. Jennifer Rose, Jennifer Rose, Ph.D. 
explaining some of the things they came up with. And it went something like this. What we found, it was me and Dr. McCullough, Peter McCullough, our co-authors on this paper. We found uh, the most prevalent finding was that 19 times above background rate myocarditis was seen in children aged 12 to 15. And this is striking. I mean, 19 times, if it was five times, it would still be crazy. But 19 times is that's not something you can ignore. And the CDC and the FDA didn't, but they under underwrote it. They didn't take it seriously enough, and they're still kind of brushing it aside as a non-issue. If anyone's wondering if um, COVID-induced myocarditis rates are higher or even equal to uh, the injection-induced myocarditis rates, they're not. You can look that up. Um you're saying so, there's a way better chance, or there's a bigger chance of getting myocarditis from the shot than from COVID. Absolutely, and 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 way more so if you are male and if you're young. You got that? You got that? I just uh, thought I should share that with you. It's a guy named Pat Cash, who is a former tennis star out of Australia. He's, he's very, very well known in Australia. And, um, he is, um, really upset because uh, somehow someone talked to his uh, healthy 89 year old mother into getting the jab. And, um, It didn't uh, didn't go well for her. My mother, at eighty nine years of age, she's eighty nine. She obviously oh, she's a bit, you know, she's old. She's got a few little heart things and a, a minor, a little minor stroke along the, uh, the way, but she's sharp as can be. There's no COVID in Australia. I mean, really, there's there's there's, there's, there's none there. They're locked down, and that's that's their, their point. When they convinced an eighty nine year old woman to go and get a vac vaccination and she goes out there and gets it and they, they you know somebody points to me and says you got blood on your hands if you don't you know do this and do that i'd say you've got blood on your hands the doctor who didn't check my mum the doctor or the people who convinced my mother at 89 to get a vaccination four days of splitting migraines followed by two strokes and a heart attack yeah You've got blood on your yeah. hands, buddy. You got. Why did they do that to an yeah. eighty-year-old, eighty-nine-year-old woman? I. It has been her, now. She's in. She's oh, had to. Yeah. She's care. She had to get looked after. She was on her own in an apartment. She was great. She collapsed on the floor. My brother just got there in time. They res, they resuscitated her. What? And. That's I said to mum, she recovered, which yeah. is amazing. I said, mum, tell the tell you tell your cardiologist what yeah. what happened. She said, I did. And I said, can you report it, please? She said, there's no point reporting it. Adverse reaction, no point, nobody listens. I was like, Mum, tell him. You know, she said, I didn't want to stress her. She did been no. two strokes and a heart attack. I was like, she basically said, nah. no. Like, Doctors aren't, aren't, aren't reporting these but, things. So we're not getting the truth on that side. As well. No, we're not. No, we're not. Now, I wonder why that is. Why don't they want the truth out? Why is that? 
Well, I think we know. I think we know. Now, there's also huge news out of uh, there, there. There's finally an FBI whistleblower. And this really shocked me. There's finally an FBI whistleblower that, you know what? Lo and behold, Merrick Garland, Attorney General of the United States, actually lied under oath. Yeah. Actually lied under oath when he said that he couldn't imagine he couldn't imagine um, the FBI just targeting targeting parents upset about critical race theory. Just can't imagine. Now, I'm going to play you the audio of Attorney General Merrick Garland lying under oath to uh, Senator Chabot. And then I'm going to give you the, the receipts and prove he was lying under oath. Does that seem like an act of domestic terrorism that you or your Justice Department ought to be investigating? Uh, absolutely not. And I want to be clear, the Justice Department uh, supports and defends the First Amendment right of parents to complain as vociferously as they wish about the education of their uh, children, about the curriculum taught in the schools. That is not what the memorandum is about at all, nor does it use the words domestic terrorism or Patriot Act. Like you, I can't imagine any circumstance in which the Patriot Act would be used in the circumstances uh, of parents complaining about their children, nor can I imagine a circumstance where they would be labeled as domestic terrorism. Thank you. I'm, I'm nearly out of time, so let me just conclude with this. We ought to be encouraging parents to be actively involved in the education of their children, is what he's going to say. Uh, what a faux pas I made. What a faux pas. Steve Chabot is a United States representative. He's not a senator. And I apologize. It always drives me crazy when people do what I just did. Yeah. Don't you know the difference between a senator and a, a congressman? Well, apparently not. And then I just did it. You know, you, you got two houses. You got the Senate and you got the House, two chambers, that is. The U.S. Senate, you know, two senators from each state, no matter how big, no matter how small, right? And you have the U and that's 100 senators. And you have the U.S. House of Representatives, 435 representatives. And every 10 years when the census comes out, some states lose districts and some states pick up districts. Anyway, anyway. Steve Chabot is U.S. House of Representatives representing the 1st District of Ohio. Now, how do we know 
that Merrick Garland lied under oath. Well, well. Christopher Rufo, writer of the City Journal, senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, brings the receipts. This came out right after I concluded my uh, live stream yesterday. Breaking House Republicans have obtained whistleblower documents showing the FBI is using its counterterrorism division to investigate and add threat tags to parents, contradicting Attorney General Merrick Garland's sworn testimony. He says Merrick Garland must resign. So here's part of the letter from Republicans in the House. Jim Jordan, ranking member of the Committee on the Judiciary. Dear Attorney General Garland, last month, during your testimony, before the Judiciary Committee, you testified that the Department of Justice and Federal Bureau of Investigation were not using federal counterterrorism tools to target concerned parents at local school board meetings. We are now in receipt of a protected disclosure from a department whistleblower showing that the FBI's counterterrorism division is compiling and categorizing threat assessments related to parents, including a document directing FBI personnel to use a specific threat tag to track potential investigations. This new information calls into question the accuracy and completeness of your sworn testimony. On October 21st, 2021, you testified that the department and its components were not using counterterrorism statutes and resources to target concerned parents at school board meetings. Specifically, you testified that you could not imagine any circumstance in which the Patriot Act would be used in the circumstances of parents complaining about their children, nor a circumstance where they would be labeled as domestic terrorists. You also testified, I do not think that parents getting angry at school boards for whatever reason constitutes domestic terrorism. It's not even a close question. Later in the hearing, however, you were questioned about the department's press release touting the inclusion of the National Security Division, the departmental component responsible for enforcing federal terrorism laws, including the Patriot Act, in a task force you created to address the rising criminal conduct directed towards school personnel. You appeared surprised to learn about the National Security Division's involvement in the task force, but you avoided a direct answer to the question and offer no clarification or explanation for the National Security Division's role in the task force. We have now received a disclosure from a department whistleblower calling into question the accuracy and completeness of your testimony. The whistleblower provided an FBI email dated October 20th, the day before your testimony, and sent on behalf of the FBI's Assistant Director for the Counterterrorism Division and the Assistant Director for the Criminal Division, the email, which is enclosed, referenced your October 4th directive to the FBI to address school board threats and notified FBI personnel about a new threat tag created by the counterterrorism and criminal divisions. The email directed FBI personnel to apply this new threat tag to all investigations and assessments 
of threats specifically directed against school board administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. The email articulated the purpose as scoping this threat on a national level and providing an opportunity for comprehensive analysis of the threat picture for effective engagement with law enforcement partners at all levels. This disclosure provides specific evidence that federal law enforcement operationalized counterterrorism tools at the behest of a left-wing special interest group against concerned parents. We know from public reporting, National School Boards Association coordinated with the White House prior to sending a letter dated September 29th to Biden labeling parents as domestic terrorists and urging the Justice Department to use federal tools, including the Patriot Act, to target parents. Just five days later, October 4th, you issued a memorandum directing the FBI and other departmental components to address a purported disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence at school board meetings. As a whistleblower's disclosure shows, the FBI's counterterrorism division quickly effectuated your directive. The FBI's actions were an entirely foreseeable and perhaps intended result of your October 4th memorandum. But I'll tell you one thing. I wish, I wish I had the rest of this letter. Because this guy, thank God he never got on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. You know what I'm saying? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what would have happened? It's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. I'm looking at... um, Jim Jordan's website to see if he's got the rest of the uh, the letter because he's uh, the ranking member on the House Judiciary Committee, and uh, I can't I can't find it. But what I do find, what I do find. is that um, Jim Jordan also pointed out Attorney General Merrick Garland claimed the testimony of the FBI would not target parents as a result of his directive to look into the conflicts happening between school officials and parents. And he says if getting slapped with a threat tag by the FBI doesn't mean parents are being targeted, Garland definitely needs to explain how that works. Nicole Neely of Grassroots Nonprofit Parents Defending Education said the whistleblower's disclosures prove that the FBI was, in fact, using counterterrorism tools to investigate concerned parents who have attended school board meetings, which directly contradicts Attorney General Merrick Garland's sworn congressional testimony. She added, the American people deserve a full accounting of exactly who was involved and when so that egregious overreach like this may be prevented in the future. Well, the only thing to prevent stuff like this in the future is going to be getting rid of the current administration. 
Now, Chris Rufo, back over to Chris Rufo's thread here on Twitter. Chris Rufo, writer, City Journal, senior fellow of Manhattan Institute. He says, this is the smoking gun. Attorney General Garland provided zero evidence that parents are engaging in credible threats or acts of violence, and yet he mobilized the FBI counterterrorism division to use counterterrorism tools for investigating, tracking, and tagging parents. Now, the smoking gun, the internal FBI email that we're not supposed to see. A joint message from Criminal Investigative Division and Counterterrorism Division, FBI. And says on October 4, 2021, the Attorney General forwarded a memorandum addressing a spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. The memorandum directed each U.S. attorney in coordination with the FBI to convene meetings with federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial leaders in each federal judicial district within 30 days of the issuance of the memorandum. We share an obligation to ensure all, and it goes on and on and on. This is exactly what Merrick Garland testified under oath is not happening. Chris Rufo continues talking about Merrick Garland. He says, this man is a menace to truth, justice, and law. He used the FBI to run interference for the teachers' unions and to suppress middle-class American families. The parent movement must not stop until he resigns in disgrace. And Chris Rufo concludes, God bless the FBI whistleblower who risked his career to make these documents public. We salute you. Yeah, because I was wondering, will the will there ever be, will there ever be an FBI whistleblower? Know what I'm saying? I really was wondering about that. Now, we have an update We have an update on um, one of the uh, political prisoners. One of the political prisoners being held in Washington, D.C. Julie Kelly, over in American Greatness, has just been doing an incredible job of keeping up on this. And I need to share with you the the play-by-play that she's got on a sentencing hearing today. But um, first, let me give you this. Byron York. Great journalist Byron York, Capitol rioter, pleads guilty to basic charge of parading, demonstrating, or picketing in Capitol. DOJ did not seek jail time. Judge seems angry at another judge or maybe agitated after watching too much MSNBC. Sends his man to 45 days in jail, even though DOJ was not seeking jail time. 
Now, this is from a few weeks ago. But Mike Davis, who used to work for Senator Grassley, helping him with judicial nominations, said Judge Tanya Sue Chutka appears angry the prosecutors didn't charge this defendant with more serious crimes. She can resign and apply to become a prosecutor. She's concerned about charging decisions. Maybe she thinks she can find evidence the Justice Department couldn't find. And then he asked the questions. Who's gone to prison for torching St. John's Church? That was a church across the street from the White House. Remember that? Riots in the White House area? Summer of last year? Who's gone to prison for torching the Secret Service guard station at the White House? Who's gone to prison for assaulting Senator Rand Paul after his White House visit? Who's gone to prison for disrupting Supreme Court hearing for Justice Kavanaugh? Who's gone to prison for nightly attacks on the Portland Federal Courthouse? Nobody. They don't care. They don't care. No body. So I want to um I want to give you the uh the play by play of what happened what happened today because it's just um It's just remarkable. Let me bring this up here. Take a look at uh, Julie Kelly's timeline on Twitter because you need to know. You need to know what they're doing to people not charged with any kind of violent crime. Not charged with any kind of violent crime. And it's uh, it's stunning to me, frankly. Stunning to me. Um, I don't know if you remember the pictures of the guy with some kind of Viking hat on, had paint on his face, January 6th. Guy named... Uh, Was it Jacob Chansley? Jacob Chansley. Okay. So the sentencing hearing for Jacob Chansley was early this morning. He was a guy known of as the QAnon shaman who committed no violent crime. He's been in jail now for 10 months since his arrest, January 11th. Judge Lamberth, presiding today, denied Jacob Chansley's release three times, including after his September guilty plea. Contrary to what DOJ Claims in court filings, Chansley clearly is seen on video talking to Capitol Police who do not arrest him and advising him no attacking, no assault, remain calm. Okay. 
Al Watkins, Chansley's attorney, has blasted Trump and referred to January 6th protesters as short bus people. DOJ claims to worry about deprivation of liberty for defendants. Prosecutor says even more difficult in this case, first one arrested in an attack on Capitol. She says it's an unprecedented case. DOJ objecting to use of the word peaceful. DOJ says if the defendant had acted peaceful that day, he wouldn't be here. Says he posted vitriolic messages on social media before January 6th, including stop the steal. Oh, no. Stop the steal. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it would have gotten me fired at the radio gig. Anyway, DOJ prosecutor says that's not peaceful. It's a call to battle. DOJ showed video of Jacob Chansley entering through the east side door, which had been breached earlier. He entered around 2.20 in the afternoon. Says that is chaos. DOJ lying that Capitol Police told Chansley to leave. Officer Robichaud counseled Chansley, then followed him to the Senate chamber. Guess they didn't show the video disproving the DOJ claim, only played audio. Have no clue why Attorney Watkins is going along with this. Oh, I think I know. DOJ says that is chilling, referring to Chansley saying the MF word. Prosecutor dramatically reading Chansley note that justice is coming. Judge Lamberth says government has no evidence that Chansley knew that a noose was hanging outside or that he put that up. What? By the way, they've never caught the person who constructed the noose, just like the pipe bonds. Pipe bombs. Judge Lamberth asked if Chansley heard people saying Pence should be hung. Judge Lamberth said what he wrote was a big problem. DOJ claimed Chansley knew that the, quote, mob, unquote, knew what the mob was doing and saying. Claims Chansley says, said Mike Pence was an effing traitor in the Senate chamber. The peaceful transfer of power. This is why our government is so strong and so special. The peaceful transfer of power. That's what DOJ is talking about. Okay, so defense attorney Al Watkins gets up, thanks the DOJ and the judge for courtesies to, quote, an old white guy from the heartland, unquote. So he's cray-cray. Defense attorney claims court decisions were reasoned. He says we're at a crossroads in the country by divisiveness. Al Watkins disputing January 6th comparisons to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, but... Watkins says Chansley recognizes his case as every bit as unique as he is. He says the government expended limited resources to prosecute January 6th defendants. Al Watkins reminds court that Jacob Chansley is a veteran. He says government has deployed those unlimited resources in a way that's noble. Watkins describes Chansley's mental health issues that DOJ has overlooked and prosecution and pretrial detention motions. Judge Lamberth said he made himself the image of the riot. Riot. They still call it that. Defense Attorney Watkins agrees DOJ portrayed Jacob as horrific, keeps praising DOJ prosecutor 
DOJ a crown jewel. <clears throat> Sounds like the defense attorney is not much of a defense attorney. Watkins repeatedly commands DOJ commends DOJ's noble prosecution of January 6th protesters. This clown was an attorney for the McCloskeys in St. Louis. Um, Watkins blames government for ignoring Chansley's mental health issues dating back to 2006. Judge Lamberth orders a psych exam in May. Chansley, his personality disorder, became a new man after threats of, pardon me, after results of psychological or psychiatric examination. He's been in jail for 317 days, almost all in solitary because of COVID. He's been alone, no family visits because no resources. His only human contact outside of jail was with his defense attorney, Watkins. Added that he's been tortured. Defense attorney Watkins says, I grew because of him, whatever that means. Judge Lamberth. And defense attorney Watkins agree that Chansley's political views have evolved after he didn't get a pardon from Trump. Instead of this clown lawyer pointing out the flagrant inconsistencies and how DOJ is prosecuting political protesters, he's blabbing about how great DOJ is. Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman from January 6th, thanks the judge for ensuring his organic diet Judge says, I took a lot of flack for that. Uh, big deal. Chansley says he often asked, what would Jesus do and what would Gandhi do? Now he cites Clarence Thomas talking about putting himself in everyone's shoes in the courtroom. Chansley said, I was in solitary because of me. I broke the law. Julie Kelly says, that's not why. It's because you were politically persecuted by Biden regime, punished by this judge and misrepresented by your lawyer. But Chansley says he did a lot of soul-searching in solitary. He says, I was wrong for entering the Capitol. He says, I'm certainly not a domestic terrorist. He notes he is different than the repeat offenders he's been incarcerated with. Really? You mean no other obstructionists are denied bail by DOJ and judges? That's what Julie says. He says he's repentant, explains how he turned himself in and worked with the FBI. Chancellor, uh, Chansley, as one commentator noted, is smarter and more articulate than his lawyer. What a shame he's being represented by this clown, Watkins. Julie Kelly's play-by-play on this is excellent. She says, now describing how he's been controversialized by the media, no doubt, and by this evil regime, He's asking to judge a tree by its fruits. Talking about tattoo sleeve he got after his father committed suicide. Says he's worked with kids in group homes. Judge Lambert says letters he got about Chansley were very good. He did art with abused children. Says he's a loner, tried twice to start his own business but failed. Best way to be of service to people is to be of service to God. That's what he says. Talks about the FBI, DOJ, media picking his life apart. Says the pressure is unreal. Praises Judge Lambert for his military service. Talks about suffering from starvation, panic attacks, losing his grandfather, all while in jail. Judge Lambert and Chansley now talking about shared loss of grandfather. The fact he died and I wasn't there eats me up every day. 
says, I know I am to blame. Most people have no idea what it's like to look in the mirror and say, I really messed up. Julie Kelly says it's amazing how he has survived all this. Chansley has never been arrested or incarcerated, he reminds the judge. He says, my image has been used to create fear. Talks about his personality disorder. He says, now I can better navigate the world. Says he wants a family. He's only 34. Julie Kelly says, pray for mercy for him because I don't think Judge Lamberth will. He assures the judge, the government, and the nation, I am a peaceful man. He says he often prayed to the point of exhaustion while in solitary. He says, may God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. Judge Lamberth, thanks, Jacob Chansley, for his remarks. He says, the most remarkable I've heard. But Julie Kelly says, Judge Lamberth says, what you did here was horrific. Obstructing the function of the government as you did. Judge Lamberth says, conduct is so serious that I cannot justify a downward departure. Julie Kelly this says, this is why Jacob Chansley's defense attorney, Al Watkins, sucks. Congress had adjourned by the time Chansley entered the building, and the defense attorney doesn't even bring it up. Chansley had nothing to do with obstructing the function of the government. They'd already adjourned because of the pipe bombs, which I believe were placed by federal agents because nobody's ever been arrested. Julie Kelly says the function of government. Amidst Chansley has grown and repented for what he did, and Judge Lamberth sentences Jacob Chansley to 41 months in prison anyway. Is there no justice? Apparently not. Apparently not. That's a shame. The liberal reporter. The liberal reporter. Glenn Greenwald says, DOJ acknowledges Jacob Chansley, the Q shaman, did not violently attack anyone on January 6th. Despite that, he's been held in solitary confinement for 10 months and was just sentenced to three and a half years in prison. And the criminal justice reform advocates will cheer. Wow. And you tell me you think this is still a free country. Really? I don't know, man. I don't know. Again, liberal reporter Glenn Greenwald says he got 41 months in prison after already spending 10 months in solitary confinement. Only a sick, punitive society imprisons nonviolent protesters for years in harsh conditions or one that regards particular ideologies as inherently criminal. Yep, that's it. Something I, I said when I was doing the, my, my local radio talk show in Arkansas, I don't know if I've said it on the, uh, on the podcast or not, but you got these um, radical prosecutors in Joe Biden's Justice Department telling radical judges the reason to keep this guy in jail, even though he hasn't even come to trial yet, 
the reason to deny bail to keep him in solitary confinement for months is because he agrees with Trump he's a danger to society. Got it? Got it? So they would tell a judge about me. This Washburn fellow here agrees with Trump that the election was stolen, so he's a danger to society. So you got to keep him in solitary confinement with no bail. Uh, when's the trial date? Uh, sometime next year. We'll get around to it. That's what's going on, y'all. Just thought I should tell you. Just thought I should tell you. And I go back to Julie Kelly's pinned tweet from May 11th. She links to the article she wrote in May, why is the government hiding January 6th video footage? And on that pinned tweet, she says, what if I told you Capitol Police has more than 14,000 hours, 14, hours of footage from between noon and 8 p.m. on January 6th. And what if I told you U.S. Capitol Police, Department of Justice, and federal judges are doing everything in their power to make sure you don't see it? Yep. Now, now they gave some of it to HBO for a special they wanted to do. Video footage they gave to HBO that they have not allowed defense attorneys to see. Got it? I mean, you got John Durham out there, special counsel, opening up Pandora's box, trying to uh, go after people who broke the law coming up with this uh, Russia collusion hoax back in 2016. And uh, he may very well send some high-ranking people to jail. But who is there to litigate the people who are violating the constitutional rights of people right now? Know what I'm saying? Will they ever be held accountable? Yeah, that's the problem. Will they ever be held accountable? I'd be surprised, man. I don't know. I don't know. Now, there's another question that I think needs to be asked here. Jack Cashel, recently in the American Spectator, has an article, What Did Obama Know and When Did He Know It? <clears throat> Subtitle. It's becoming increasingly clear that then-President Obama was very much in on the effort to smear Donald Trump as colluding with Russia. And Cashel says, In researching my 2020 book, Unmasking Obama, I focused on one question above all others. What did Barack Obama know about the plot to link Donald Trump to Russia, and when did he know it? 
Unlike the Watergate era, when all the insiders and government and media rushed to discover what Nixon knew, only outsiders have dared to ask about Obama. Major credit here goes to Representative Devin Nunes and his chief investigator, Cash Patel, Inspector General Michael Horowitz, former Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe, and most recently, Special Counsel John Durham. For all their good efforts, however, this probe remains very much a work in progress. That caution established, the answer to the question in the headline is becoming increasingly clear. The information contained in John Durham's recent indictment of Russian national Igor Danchenko, when coupled with the F, pardon me, when coupled with the CIA notes declassified in October 2020 by former DNI John Ratcliffe, leads directly to the White House. In the past week, these revelations have gotten a fair share of attention, at least on the right side of the blogosphere, and they deserve it. What has not gotten attention, however, is a specious counter-narrative that Obama and his allies have been quietly constructing for the last five years. Deconstructing this counter-narrative may not put Obama's Praetorian Guard in prison, but it should provide Watergate-level amusement for those of us who believe prison is where Obama's people belong. The Rosetta Stone of the counter-narrative may well be a comprehensive article in the Washington Post from June 2017. Perhaps more than any other bit of Trump-era so-called journalism, this article, complete with photos and flowcharts, revealed the major media's eagerness to enable the ongoing Democrat deep state disinformation campaign. A July 2017 update, the Post new findings and Russia's bold campaign to influence the U.S. election, contained even more bogus charts and timelines. The Washington Post article told of an early August 2016 intelligence bombshell sent by the CIA to then-President Obama with eyes-only instructions. The Post said to guard against leaks, subsequent meetings in the Situation Room follow the same protocols as planning sessions for the Osama bin Laden raid. In its flowchart of events, the Washington Post identified CIA Director John Brennan as the man who sounded the alarm. They said CIA Director John Brennan first alerts the White House in early August that Russian President Vladimir Putin had ordered an operation to defeat or at least partially damage or at least damage Hillary Clinton and help elect her opponent, Donald Trump. John Brennan's contemporaneous notes, however, tell a different story. As Ratcliffe explained Sunday on Fox News, Obama did receive an intelligence bombshell from Brennan in early, 20, August, early August 2016. Like the Washington Post reporters, Ratcliffe used the word early to mark the time in August 2016 when Obama, Brennan, and others met to discuss Russian interference. From Brennan's contemporaneous notes, however, we know the conspirators discussed not a real plot by Russia, but a fictional plot ginned up by Hillary Clinton foreign policy advisor Chuck Dolan to, quote, vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security service, unquote. Complicating matters for Obama was that on July 31st, just a few days earlier, the FBI had formally launched a surveillance operation on the Trump campaign based in no small part on the information British agent Christopher Steele had been providing. The investigation was codenamed 
crossfire hurricane after a lyric from a Rolling Stones song. Well, if Jumpin' Jack Flash is born in a crossfire hurricane, so too was the operation named after him. Caught in the crossfire was FBI Director James Comey, who attended these early August meetings. Comey told the Office of Inspector General that John Brennan, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, and National Security Advisor Susan Rice were in attendance along with himself and Obama. One suspects there were meetings, and then there were meetings Obama and Brennan knew by early August 2016 the FBI was investigating the Trump campaign's alleged involvement in the collusion plot. Importantly, they also knew the investigation was based on a Clinton dirty trick. At this point, James Comey may not have known. If John Durham could get someone to talk about these meetings, a big if, CNN may even have to pay attention. Comey would surely have known about Hillary Clinton involvement by September 7, 2016. On that date, the CIA sent a memo to the FBI, attention Peter Strzok, relating what they called U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan concerning U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russian hackers as means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. Oh, I see. So Peter Strzok now has cause to lose sleep. It was he who ran Crossfire Hurricane. Although Strzok told the Office of Independent Counsel he never attended any White House briefings about Crossfire Hurricane, he gave FBI lover Lisa Page the opposite impression. On August 5th, 2016, texting with Lisa, Lisa Page, he quoted an unnamed power player, likely Brennan, as saying the White House is running this. October 15th. Peter Strzok memorialized the aspirations of all involved. By texting Lisa Page, there's no way Trump gets elected, but I'm afraid we can't take that risk. It's like an insurance policy in the unlikely event you die before you're 40. Now, according to the June 2017 Washington Post article, John Brennan's early August report, drawn from sourcing deep inside the Russian government, made two bold claims. One detailed Russian President Vladimir Putin's direct involvement in a cyber campaign to disrupt and discredit the U.S. presidential race. The second captured Putin's specific instructions to defeat or at least damage Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton and help elect her opponent Donald Trump. However fictional, this information tracks with the CIA's September 7th memo citing Hillary's plan. The memo also delineated the two Related Russia disinformation streams that would come to dominate the news for the next three years. One was the collusion of the Trump team with Vladimir Putin. The second was Russian hacking, not just of DNC emails, but of the election itself. Much of the lengthy Washington Post article dealt with suspected Russian attempts to penetrate election systems. Back when serious people could still talk publicly about foreign interference in U.S. elections, the FBI had allegedly detected such attempts in 21 states. Also on the Washington Post flow chart was this gem. Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson's efforts to secure the U.S. voting systems run aground when some state officials reject his plan, calling it a federal takeover. Is this crazy or what? Ironically, Washington Post quoted Governor Brian Kemp, then Georgia Secretary of State, as rejecting Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson's attempt for federal oversight. 
Kim told the Washington Post, I think it was a politically calculated move by the previous administration. To the reporters in astonishment, Governor Kemp remained unconvinced that Russia would wage or that Russia waged the campaign to disrupt the 2016 race. Now, in, by, June, by June of 2017, it had become clear to those willing to look that Governor Kemp was right, but Team Obama and the media could not admit it. While still shoring up the Trump-Russia collusion narrative, they had to rewrite the election interference plotline. It was an easy fix. Obama himself had set the stage for the revision in the December 2016 press conference. As he told the story, he confronted Putin at the G20 summit in China in September 2016. Obama said, uh, I felt that the most effective way to ensure more hacking uh, didn't happen was to talk to him directly and tell him to cut it out. And there was going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. And in fact, we did not see further tampering in the election process. So the Washington Post bought the story. According to his June 2017 account, Obama told Putin he knew what Putin was doing and he better stop or else. And that was that. Four years later, Obama operatives used Edward Isaac Dover, author of the widely discussed 2020 election book, Battle for the Soul, to launder their heroic tale. John Brennan took the point on mythologizing Obama's imagined smackdown of Putin. I think Putin had to do the, his calculus, taking into account that, quote, I can do these things and maybe I'll even try to affect the vote tallies, but if she does win, we're probably going to have a rough time of it, unquote. So if I were Putin at that time, I think my calculation would have been, okay, I'm not going to do the stuff on the technical front because if we do something on the technical front, they're probably eventually going to find out. But if you do things on the information front, that's basically propaganda. So that's the type of stuff that intelligence services have been doing forever. Team Obama summarized Russia's apocryphal information front in a declassified version of the Intelligence Community Assessment, released January 6, 2017. That's two weeks exactly before Trump's inauguration. Obama personally commissioned the Intelligence Community Assessment a month earlier, and Brennan executed it. According to the report, Putin ordered an influence campaign. His goal was to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. The assessment also insisted Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump. Now, although Obama had been largely quiet about how he and his team transformed a Hillary-approved plot to kneecap Trump into a massive multi-year government-run plot to do the same, his colleagues had been more forthcoming. The story they told did not have to be true. As with all cover-ups, it merely had to be plausible. Susan Rice felt the need to establish an alibi for Obama on the very day T Donald Trump was inaugurated. And what soccer fans call an own goal, Susan Rice sent to self an email concerning a January 5th, 2017 meeting Obama had with all the usual suspects, Comey, Brennan, Rice, Clapper, uh, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, and Vice President Joe Biden. And here's what Susan Rice's email that she sent on Inauguration Day 2017 said, quote, President Obama began the conversation by stressing 
his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book. The president stressed he's not asking about initiating or instructing anything from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to practice, pardon me, needs to proceed as it normally would by the book, unquote. Now, by 2020, of course, Obama's by the book counter narrative had collapsed everywhere except in the mainstream media. That did not stop acolytes John Brennan and Susan Rice from continuing to try to sell it. And Dover's retelling, the drama began when John Brennan arrived at a private White House lunch with a package of classified material. Dover writes, the Russians weren't just coming, they were already here. Dover bought it all. For him, there were elements of the interference that everyone could see. Obama's people were manfully sticking to their story. The story was an epic one. The Washington Post reporters went on to win Pulitzers for their reporting on what they called the crime of the century, an unprecedented and largely successful destabilizing attack on American democracy. Now, that's not an easy story for anyone to walk back, especially for a president whose fingerprints are all over it. So that's a great Jack Cashel over the American Spectator article entitled, What Did Obama Know and When Did He Know It? See, this is the thing. This is the thing. This is the thing that confuses me. This is the thing I'm trying to wrap my mind around. So I was really surprised that John Durham had been able to indict a couple of people recently, one of whom, Michael Sussman, an attorney with a law firm called Perkins Coie, who lied, allegedly, to chief counsel of the FBI, James Baker, about not being on the Clinton payroll. and But he even charged Clinton billable hours for the time he was talking to the FBI chief counsel. He is a very well-connected Democrat attorney. And then more recently, the only source for the Christopher Steele dossier, which the whole Trump-Russia collusion thing was built on, guy named Igor Denchenko, he's been also indicted. So when the first one of those guys, Sussman, was indicted, I reached out to my friend Andy McCarthy, who I've interviewed many times. He was the former assistant U.S. attorney. He's the guy that took down the blind shake, Abdul Rahman, and his band of married jihadists back in the 90s when they tried to blow up the World Trade Center the first time. Anyway, I asked him, I said, here's what I understand. I mean, I get that, that Durham's special counsel, but he still has to, uh, if he wants to indict anybody, he's got to get that clear by the attorney general, Biden's attorney general, Merrick Garland, right? And Andy was like, yeah, right, but. See, because they're clearly going after the Hillary Clinton team here. Right, but he says Biden hates Hillary anyway. I think as long as this doesn't lead to Obama and or Biden, then they'll be fine with him taking down whoever in the Clinton team. All right. But see, I had a problem with that. And Andy McCarthy and I were talking by DM on Twitter. That's that's direct message. That's what they call, what, what would be called a private message if it was on Facebook. I said, yeah, but there was this January 5th, 2017 meeting with Obama and Biden and Brennan and Comey 
Susan Rice, the whole crew was there. And it was clear, it's, it's been known for quite some time, that this was about the ongoing Russia collusion hoax. The attempt to take out Mike Flynn and take out Trump. So, I mean, obviously it leads there too. I mean, I, Andy didn't respond at that point, but he had already told he had already told me he thought that uh, John Durham and Merrick Garland understood each other and had some kind of tacit agreement. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. Now, who remembers Nicholas Sandman? Remember him? 16-year-old high school student from Covington Catholic High School, Covington, Kentucky, was with a group of his buddies in Washington, D.C. They've been there for the March for Life, and they're just waiting for with the chaperones with uh, for the buses to show up and take them back to Kentucky. And this so-called Native American activist starts uh, yelling and singing, and beating his drum so close to Sandman's face, looked like he was going to hit him. And Sandman just stood there smiling and did not engage. And liberals in the entertainment world and liberals in the media went nuts and called him all kinds of things. And he got some good attorneys and started suing. And I hope the lawsuits aren't over. Anyway, Nicholas Sandman... Yesterday afternoon, did an op-ed in the UK Daily Mail entitled "The Corrupt Liberal Media Came Came for Me," just like they came for Kyle Rittenhouse. And if he decides to sue, I say go for it and hold the media accountable. Well. He says. The parallels between me and Kyle Rittenhouse are impossible not to draw. Kyle was 17 years old when he became a household name after the terrible tragedy in Kenosha. I was 16 years old when I was catapulted into the national conversation by video of an encounter with a Native American activist on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He says Kyle was almost immediately labeled a white supremacist and a domestic terrorist. To many, my red MAGA hat clearly meant that I was the threat. He says, in only hours, a CNN host tweeted an image of me writing, honest question, have you ever met a more punchable face than this kid's? Kyle wasn't given his day in court by his critics, and neither was I. The attacks on Kyle came from the national news media just as they came from me. They came quickly without hesitation because Kyle was an easy target that they could paint in the way they wanted to. This is the problem with liberal media outlets in the United States. They want to get the story first, get the most views, make the most money, and advance the agenda from liberal patrons. These outlets cover themselves when they are wrong with small footnotes at the ends of long articles clarifying that new information has come out, and they have updated their coverage. News shouldn't be a scoreboard that constantly changes. News is about coverage that includes a statement of facts that does not need to be corrected. But the liberal media doesn't do this. The liberal media rushes to be the first to report. So every single label 
on Kyle as a terrorist, white supremacist, a school shooter in the streets of Kenosha will only ever be withdrawn after the damage has been done. He says, in our hyperpolarized society, the first impression of Kyle has been set in stone probably for the rest of his life. So to Joe Biden, LeBron James, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and every other commentator, please be quiet. On November 10th, LeBron James tweeted out, what tears with five, five question marks? I didn't see one. Man, knock it off. That boy ate some lemon heads before walking into court. Unquote. LeBron's tweet reflects the insensitivity and resentment of the liberal media and elites that surrounded this entire ordeal from its beginning to now. In the video referenced by James, Kyle breaks down as he tries to describe the moments before he made the decision to fire his weapon at the people he felt were threatening his life. It's obvious to the trauma associated with the event and how it severely affects Kyle. Pardon me, I'm sorry. It's oblivious. Yes, LeBron James is oblivious to the trauma associated with this event and how it severely affected Kyle Rittenhouse. Taking a life for any reason sticks with someone forever, and yet the liberal elites would rather just turn it into a joke for likes and social media. Nicholas Sandman says not only does Kyle have to deal with that, but it's compounded with the overwhelming stress and trauma of the character assassination taking place against him. He says, from my own experience, the death threats, feeling of no future ahead, and the millions of people hate you is enough to alter you in many concrete ways and permanently. Make no mistake, even the strongest of people cannot resist the mental impact when the media war machine targets you. He says, with Kyle's name dragged through the mud and the clear effect it is having on him, many have started to ask the question whether Kyle should sue for defamation. He says, while I am by no means an attorney, I have gained some experience on the ins and outs of defamation and can offer an educated guess on what the outcome would be if Kyle were to sue. He says, it's important to note that defamation cases are some of the hardest cases to win. The plaintiff must first prove that what was published about them was false. This is usually defeated by the protection of the First Amendment as defendants claim that they were expressing their opinion. The First Amendment is a right that Americans hold dear and our right to free speech should be protected. A plaintiff must then prove that a result of the publishings of the defendant that they were negatively impacted in their community. As for the previous terms, Kyle has been labeled white supremacist, terrorist, school shooter, I have my doubts as to whether these legal claims would be successful in court. If person A was to say Kyle was a white supremacist or any of these other terms, A would be able to claim that being a white supremacist or a racist was their opinion and written houses was conduct. Pardon me. If person A was to claim person A was to say that Kyle was a white supremacist or any of these other terms, A would be able to claim that being a white supremacist or a racist was their opinion and Rittenhouse's conduct. The case law on defamation, defamation argues that these terms are opinions because a term like racist or white supremacist does not specifically imply a fact that can be proven false. 
but one claim where Kyle may have a chance, albeit still a challenging case to win, is on the issue of him allegedly crossing state lines with a weapon. That claim was proven to be false. If terms like racist and school shooter were used in con conjunction with false facts, it can create a defamatory gist that he crossed state lines with weapons and his actions were done in a racist or white supremacist manner. Should Kyle sue? It first depends on what happens in the trial as those elements would come into play where he was, where he was found guilty. However, if Kyle's innocent, it would create an easier road to winning. Again, the chances are still low and nothing is guaranteed in a defamation trial. Kyle should also be prepared for a long trial, which will be present in his mind for years. I personally am still involved in six media lawsuits as January approaches, making three years since the confrontation took place at the March for Life. He says, so if Kyle is prepared to make to take on another burden in his early life with the acceptance that it might result in nothing, I answer, give it a shot and hold the media accountable. One of the saddening parts of this media onslaught is that it's taken young people like Kyle and myself to expose how corrupt the media really is. He, he concludes saying, from my own experience, I know that this cannot be easy for Kyle. While I have waited to comment on the facts of Kyle's case until the trial ends, I cannot hold back on the media's public execution of him before the trial is concluded. At this time, I would like to use my platform to let Kyle know that I am here for you, and if you ever would like to reach out to me, I am about the only person our age to have an idea of how the media is treating you. The way the media has treated you is terrible, and you don't have to face it alone. Well, God bless him. God bless Nicholas Sandman for reaching out and trying to trying to encourage Kyle Rittenhouse, trying to give some perspective from someone who's been through the same thing, the media character assassination. Now, speaking of media character assassination, why does it always seem that they go after the conservatives, right? And they leave the, um, leave the liberal radicals alone. Let me give you a, a, an example here. New York Post has it. A Virginia university has placed an assistant professor on administrative leave after the educator sparked heated backlash for saying it isn't necessarily immoral for adults to be sexually attracted to children. Alan Walker, who teaches sociology and criminal justice at Old Dominion University, made the controversial comment while discussing what he called minor attractive persons and pedophiles during a November 8th interview with Prostasia Foundation, a San Francisco-based child protection organization. As Professor Walker uses the uh, pronouns they, them, it's very important, was discussing their book. No, 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 no. I'm not going to use the pronouns. And the New York Post shouldn't use the pronouns just because this idiot has some kind of mental problems. No, he was discussing his book called A Long Dark Shadow, Minor Attracted People and Their Pursuit of Dignity. 
when he insisted it's important to use that terminology instead of pedophile because it's less stigmatizing. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 we need to be stigmatizing. Yeah, we need to be stigmatizing here. In a statement Tuesday, Old Dominion University said it had placed Walker on administrative leave. Well, they took their own sweet time, didn't they? Old Dominion's statement said reactions to Dr. Walker's research and book have led to concerns for their safety. No, no, his safety and that of the campus. Furthermore, the controversy over Dr. Walker's research has disrupted the campus and community environment as interfering with the institution's mission of teaching and learning. Well, I'm not sure that is your mission. Old Dominion University President Brian Hemphill said in an accompanying statement, I want to state in the strongest terms possible that child sexual abuse is morally wrong and has no place in our society. Okay, well then, your professor is also morally wrong and has no place at your university. Oh, he added, this is a challenging time for our university, but I'm confident that we will come together and move toward, move forward as a monarch family. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, that's the important thing. That's the important thing. You have a pedophile apologist on faculty, but it's important to mention the, uh, the mascot for your sports teams. Yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna move forward as a monarch family, you know, because our our football team is a monarchs and our baseball team is a monarchs and our basketball team is a monarchs. And please, do I have to keep on talking about this pedo? Or should I say, pedo enthusiast? New York Post continues here. Walker had acknowledged that the use of the term "minor attractive persons" or "maps" suggests to some that it's okay to be attracted to children, but said labeling anyone wholly by their sexual desires doesn't indicate anything about their morality. Professor, please. I said that mildly. I mean, I could have used a different first word. A lot of people do. He said, from my perspective, there's no morality or immorality attached to attraction to anyone because no one can control who they're attracted to at all. In other words, it's not who we're attracted to that's either okay or not okay. It's our behaviors in responding to that attraction that are either okay or not okay. Come on, give me a break. Walker said child sex abuse is never, ever okay, but that having sexual urges toward children isn't necessarily wrong as long as those carnal desires aren't acted upon. I don't think he actually believes that. He drew condemnation online after being shared on Twitter as someone trying to normalize adults who are attracted to juveniles. The assistant professor also put out a joint statement Saturday with Old Dominion University clarifying his remarks. He said, and I quote, I want to be clear, child sexual abuse is an inexcusable crime. As an assistant professor of sociology and criminal justice, the goal of my research is to prevent crime. Yeah, right. That's why you call yourself they there. Huh? Really? You know, I got to tell you, man. 
there are plenty of us who are uh, not buying what you're selling. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but inflation seems to be kind of uh, bad these days. Almost like it's getting out of hand. Well, this is a remarkable thing. Stephen Ratner, guy who served as counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration, has a new op-ed out in the New York Times. That's remarkable. What's also remarkable is for some reason they didn't put up a paywall, so I actually see it. Now, again, Stephen Ratner, counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. So he's a longtime Democrat in good standing, influential Democrat. His op-ed in the New York Times says, I warned the, the Democrats about inflation. He says, enough already about so-called transitory inflation. Last Wednesday's terrible consumer price index news shifts our inflation prospects strongly into the embedded category. Prices are up 6.2% from a year ago, the largest increase in 30 years. While not likely to morph into the double-digit inflation I covered from the New York Times four decades ago, Prices may well rise fast enough to trigger higher higher interest rates. Higher financing costs make it more expensive for consumers and businesses to borrow, which in turn throttles growth. growth. Inflation had already been tagged as a factor in the Democrats' awful election results this month and the president's sagging poll numbers. It also threatens the passage of President Biden's Build Back Better plan, which includes expansive new initiatives to address climate change as well as important programs like paid family leave and universal preschool. But last Thursday, Joe Manchin, a key centrist Democrat senator, suggested he may want to delay consideration of the legislation until next year because of his concerns over its impact on inflation. For the Biden administration, which has long insisted that prices would rise far more slowly, inflation is now its biggest challenge. He says, how could an administration loaded with savvy political and economic hands, have gotten this critical issue so wrong. He says they can't say they weren't warned, notably by Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, and my former boss in the Obama administration, and less notably by many others, including me. We worried that shoveling an unprecedented amount of spending into an economy already on the road to recovery would mean too much money chasing too few goods. From my many conversations with administration officials, Lawmakers and informed onlookers in recent months, it's clear to me that the pressure on the White House, particularly from progressives, to move forcefully was intense. Emboldened by his victory over Donald Trump, Mr. Biden made clear he believed he had a mandate to affect broad change. Haunted by the response to the 2008 economic crisis, deemed too timid by many experts, his mantra has been that it's better to do too much than too little. Uh, maybe, but this much? The original sin was the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan passed in March. The bill, almost completely unfunded, sought to counter the effects of the COVID pandemic by focusing on demand-side stimulus rather than on investment. That has contributed materially to today's inflation levels. Focused on the demand side, even most pessimists, me included, missed a pressing problem. Supply chain bottlenecks 
have led, have led to shortages of many goods, a crisis that has been exacerbated by the reluctance of Americans to return to work. Uh, I wonder whose problem, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Come on. Are you going to tell us? You going to tell us whose fault that is? The worker shortage has also hurt the service sector. Many restaurants, for example, remain closed because they can't find workers. Both also spark higher prices. Now, between the government pay payments and underspending during the pandemic, American consumers are sitting on an estimated $2.3 trillion more in their bank accounts than projected by the pre-pandemic trend. As they emerge from seclusion, Americans are eager to spend on everything from postponed vacations to clothing, but the supply chain breakdowns has turned the simple act of spending money into a challenge. For the Democrats, recent disappointing election results and the current legislative logjam offer a dose of cold reality. The administration wanted to claim a big policy win ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, but inflation worries are top of voters' minds. So the administration should come clean with voters about the impact of its spending plans on inflation. Build Back Better can be deemed paid for only if one embraces budget gimmicks, like assuming that some of the most important initiatives will be allowed to expire in just a few years. The result? A package that front-loads spending while tax revenues arrive only over a decade. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimates that the plan would likely add $800 billion or more to the deficit over the next five years, exacerbating, you guess it, inflationary pressures. Mr. Biden also insists that the much-lauded infrastructure bill he just signed is fully paid for, but it isn't. Again, this is a Democrat who was a Big deal in the Obama administration saying this. He says, indeed, the infrastructure figures show $550 billion in new spending and just $173 billion of additional offsets. Of course, some responsibility for overstimulating lies with the Federal Reserve, which responded correctly to the onset of the pandemic by cutting interest rates and shoveling money into the financial system. Most recently, the Fed has been too slow to curtail its program of buying debt, sending still more money to chase those few goods. And until recently, Fed officials were echoing the White House line about so-called tra transitory inflation. For the Fed, addressing inflation will mean raising interest rates perhaps sooner than it thinks necessary. The Fed targets average annual inflation of 2%. So if or when the pace of price increases gets stuck far above that level, the central bank will need to raise interest rates to address the problem. While the Fed thinks this won't happen until late next year, the bond market believes rates will be hiked by mid-year. The responsibility for easing inflationary inflationary Take two, the responsibility for easing inflationary pressures also lies with the Biden administration. To its credit, it is scrambling to address the supply shortages, doing things like unclogging ports. I don't think it's doing that. I mean, it may say it's doing that. This guy believes it's doing that. I don't think they're doing that. He says, but other ideas, such as releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, amount to distracting Symbolic moves that are unlikely to have a significant effect on inflation. The White House needs to inject some real fiscal discipline. <laughs> oh, 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 no way. Mm. He didn't say that, did he? The White House, I'll try to get through with a straight face the second time here. 
The White House needs to inject some real fiscal discipline into its thinking, given the importance of Mr. Biden's spending initiatives. The right move would be to add significant revenue sources. Yes, that means tax increases. We can't get back money badly spent, but we can build this economic plan back better. That is Stephen Ratner, who served as counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. And his article is entitled, I Warned the, the Democrats About Inflation. See, what, what he's unwilling to address here is that this is, by design, in the, the heavy inflation is a feature, not a bug. This is exactly what Biden and his handlers are trying to do. And he just can't wrap his mind around that. Which is kind of surprising since he worked with this guy before. They need to, uh, what was that last thing? They, they need to inject some real fiscal discipline into their thinking. They're Democrats. They're Marxists. They're not liberals. They're communists. There's going to be no fiscal discipline. Are you kidding me? You must be joking. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. By the way, the great uh, independent journalist uh, Jordan Schachtel over to Substack said, Michigan's new COVID case rate is now a whopping 10 times higher than Florida's. Hospitalization rate is five times higher than Florida. All metrics currently re- leading, heading in the wrong direction. Have you read a single story in corporate press, even lightly critiquing Gretchen Whitmer, Governor of Michigan's handling of the pandemic? No, 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 no. They hate, they hate DeSantis. Right? They hate DeSantis. Oh, by the way, uh, the great Murray Rothbard over Twitter says the Biden administration and Merrick Garland have turned the war on terror inward against the American people. It was only a matter of time. There have been many steps that preceded it. It only gets worse if we don't demand reforms, resignations, prosecutions, and vote them out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I, I I don't know. I mean, hope springs eternal. Wise man once said, work like everything depends on you. Pray like everything depends on God. Know what I'm saying? Now, before I get out of here, I I really think I do owe you a clip from uh, Ted Cruz from yesterday with uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, Ted Cruz, handing his gluteus maximus to him, if I may use that term in present company. It went something like this. It was about two minutes. Deaths, you didn't prepare that debt either. All right, how about this? How many children have been in the Biden cages in calendar year 2021? Um, uh, Senator, I uh, respectfully disagree with um, 
your use of uh, the term cages. Fine. You can disagree with it. How many children have been in the Biden cages? I've been to the Biden cages. I've seen the Biden cages. How many children have you detained at the Donna Tent facility in the cages you built told kids? How many children have been in those cages? Uh, uh, Senator, I can uh, uh, provide to you the following uh, figure that um, when and let me let me say that when a child, I, I don't. Child, I, I, it's a simple question. How many children have been in those cages? Uh, I, I respectfully am not familiar with the term cages and to what you are referring. There are enclosures in which they are locked in, in which I took photographs and put them out because you blocked the press and didn't want people to see the Biden cages. These secure facilities in which they are locked down in Donna. That uh, those facilities, how many children have been in them? Senator, there are three types of facilities. There's the, the Donna tent cages, the, the Donna tent city. Let's take the Donna facility. How many children have been there? That is a soft-sided facility. It is not. A okay. Are you going to answer the question? How many children have been in that facility? I, I will have to circle back with you with a precise number. Circle back. What is he? The White House press secretary? What is he, Jen? Psaki? What is all this circling back? Is he, is he not served well by his staff? You got to know you're going to get a question like this. It's a big time now, you know? Secretary of Homeland Security, you're going before a Senate committee. You don't think you're going to get questions like this? What a maroon. Here's more. Oh, by the way, here's a photograph of the Biden cages. That, um, uh, Senator, um, that is precisely why I articulated. Children beginning. sleeping on floors crashed in upon each other. When I took this photograph, the COVID rate, rate of COVID positivity was over 10%. May I, may I speak, Senator? You can answer the question, how many kids have been in these that, conditions? That is precisely why I stated in March of this year that a Border Patrol station is no place for a child, number one. Okay, but number two, all right, that is precisely. Secretary Mayorkas, you're not answering my question, so let me ask you this. In the past year, has Joe Biden been down to see firsthand the Biden cages? Senator, I will again. Respect. Has Joe Biden been down to see this facility? Uh, yes or no? The president has not been down to. Okay, the no. Has Kamala Harris been down to see the Biden cages, this facility? Um, yes or no? Uh, the vice president was at the border. Has she been down? No. Nah. He's speaking slowly to try to, you know, try to exhaust Ted Cruz's time. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know if you heard about uh, Biden and his old buddy, Xi of China. I got a little something for you. President Xi, is there going to become a time where you might call him old friend to old friend? Let's get something straight. We know each other well. We're not old friends. And the president this summer told Peter here that he does not consider President Xi an old friend. How would you describe how would you describe their relationship going into this meeting? Well, I I think he, I can confirm Peter, he just still does not consider him an old friend. So that remains consistent. Uh, and then we see the picture of them smiling and waving at each other. It's the first time for us to meet virtually. Although it's not as good as a face-to-face -face meeting, I'm very happy to see my old friend. So Premier Xi of China calls Biden his old friend, and Biden certainly doesn't. Uh, he'll try to correct uh, Peter Ducey. He's not going to correct uh, 
the head of the genocide in China. Now, i got to ask something about uh, what's going on with um, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as the jury deliberates in its uh, second day. Why are these loud protesters allowed right outside the courthouse where the jury trying to deliberate can probably hear them doing stuff like this? Yeah, I wonder if that uh, is in any way um, challenging the jury to come up with uh, the obvious verdict of not guilty. I wonder if they feel intimidated or threatened by these people out there yelling no justice, no peace. What do you think? What do you think? A lot going on, and you know what? We could we could sit here the rest of the day, but at, at some point you got to wrap it up. And I really appreciate your uh, your patience with me today. I'm just so thankful that God has opened the door for me to do this live stream slash podcast every day. And um, and there's nobody saying you better not say the election was stolen or you'll be fired. There's nobody to say, now Now make sure your personalities don't, don't uh, cast any aspersions on the safety of the vaccines. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for this opportunity. All right, um, <clears throat> pardon me. That having been said, you've been listening to the all-new Doc Washburn Show. This has been episode number 27 uh, November 17th, 2021. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansoor's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansoor Sempier the 10th. Well, that's the way it is. Wednesday, November 17th, 2021.